I understand the respect and credibility being communicated when I am referred to as the founding pastor. <laughs> but I didn't find anything. Here's the deal. The Bible says that Jesus said that he has come to seek and to save the lost. So the real deal is Jesus found me. I was lost and far away from God, and Jesus in his love and in his grace found me and saved me and brought me back to God. I got some good news because for you because that's the good news. That's the gospel. And the good news is he can do the same thing for you this morning. If you are lost and, and away from God, regardless of how far it might be, Jesus is pursuing you with his love and his grace to bring you back to God. The Bible says it like this, for God so loved you, he loves you so much that he gave his only son, Jesus Christ to die for you so that you could follow him here on earth and you could live with him for all of eternity. Live with him in heaven. And that is good news. Because the Bible also says anyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And my prayer is this morning, if you have yet to call on the name of Jesus Christ for your salvation, my prayer is that you will do it today. Jesus Christ also found Cedar Creek Church. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we better uh, come up with and find a new name for me, because I sure can't take any credit for finding Cedar Creek Church. What I've done through the years is I've had the joy of joining with thousands of other people who uh, are like-minded and like-hearted and who have a passion to see people find their way back to God. You see, Cedar Creek Church is unique in that thousands of people over the last 19 years have been willing to put their own personal preferences aside for the greater good of God's church. You see, a church doesn't experience the growth that we have without this happening. And because you have done this, Cedar Creek Church is, is, is a mega church, which means that we're one of the largest 2,000 churches in America. And all I can say is, well done. Well done, Cedar Creek Church. I believe God is saying the same thing. And with that said, now what I want to say to you is, good morning, Cedar Creek Church. <laughs> we are one church in three locations. Man, that's good to say from up here, because the last time I stood here, we were one church in one location. We are now one church in how many? Count them. One, two, three locations. So whether you are listening to me this morning from the Banks Mill campus, or you're at the West campus, or you're at the Ridge campus, welcome and good morning. I couldn't be more thrilled at what God is doing and the growth that He is bringing through you on all three of our multi-site locations. So I want to thank you this morning. Thank you, Cedar Creek Church, for being obediently and faithfully following God's call to expand our reach, helping over a thousand new people find their way back to God.
You know, there is a saying that everything rises and falls on leadership, and I believe that. And that is certainly true of our church. We have a fantastic vocational and lay staff leading us on all three campuses. And to our leaders, I also want to say, well done, well done. Our pastor and my friend, Philip Lee, asked me to share with you this morning, and at first, I'll just be honest with you, I was really hesitant to do it. Because over the past four or five years, I've become much more comfortable sitting out there where you're seated than being up here. I'm really, uh, I'm really out of my, my comfort zone this morning. And no, even though some of you have said this to me to sort of encourage me, no, it's not like riding a bike or getting back on a horse. Last time I tried to get up on a horse, I almost fell off the other side. Besides that, my memory isn't what it used to be. And I have a hard time, I've had a hard time over the last week and a half uh, memorizing what I want to say to you because that's always been my style, to, to, to memorize. It, it's been a curse uh, my, most of my pastoral life. And, and it's much more difficult to, to do that now. And uh, you might ask, well, how, how forgetful are you? <laughs> Did someone just ask that? Last week, I was about ready to get in my Prius. Yes, we've gone green in the Swift family. And I remembered that there were some folding chairs uh, in the back of the, of the Prius. So I lifted up the hatchback, and I took the chairs out. And in the eight steps that I walked across the garage with the chairs to put them down, I, I, my mind went somewhere else, another direction. I'm still trying to find it. And so... Instead of going to the back, I went around the front of the car, got in, started it up, and no, the garage door was not down, but the hatchback was up. And when the car is parked and stationary in my garage, it clears the, the top of the garage door when it's open by about that much. But right as you are leaving the garage, it doesn't clear the garage door by about that much, and I ripped the spoiler right off of my new Prius. And so I, I go into the paint and body shop, and I said, Ma'am, have you had any other boneheaded people walk in here this morning? And she looked at me, and she said, Sir, this is a paint and body shop. <laughs> so we go outside to, to, for them to give me an estimate, and, and the lady knew that I was downhearted. I mean, I, was, I felt terrible about it. And she said, uh, Look at that car down there at the end of the parking lot. So I looked, and the whole back end was bashed in. I mean, the entire back end, the, the rear window wasn't there anymore. And she said, look at that car. That lady went through the garage door. <laughs> okay, now where was I? Somebody help me. Well, I want to tell you that what I have to share this morning is not so much a sermon. You don't even have an outline. Some of you have already gone into shock. No outline. But it's not so much a sermon this morning as your founding pastor. Just sharing his heart. That's what I want to do. I just want to share my heart with you this morning. Probably some of the things that I'm going to share with you this morning I should have shared when I retired four or five years ago. Uh, some things I did share with you that time that would help with the transition. But I think there were other. Now, in, in retrospect, I see that there probably were some other things 
that would help uh, with, with that transition. And, and I realize, uh, and I'll just qualify it by saying there are some things that I'm going to share with you this morning that probably apply only to a small minority. But I think what I have to share will be a good review for us, for every one of us, as to uh, God's call on our life as His church, what He has called us to, to do and to be, and why we do church the way we do it. If there is one person who can identify with the exhaustion that Philip is experiencing, it is me. And as David alluded to, if you weren't here last week, our pastor shared his heart. I have never been more proud of our pastor than when at the end of the service last week, they pulled a stool out and he sat down and he just poured his heart out. And he shared some of the, some of the uh, joys and some of the struggles of being a pastor of a mega church. And I was going to read you part of the letter he wrote, but David mentioned that, that it's online. And if you, if you didn't hear him last week, please go online because you're going to get a whole new perspective of your, of your pastor and you're going to love him even more if that's possible. Here's the bottom line. Our pastor is exhausted. He's tired, run down, depleted, and he desperately needs a few extended weeks away to rest and re-energize and eventually to return and re-engage with, with a renewed passion for what it takes to lead this church. And it takes a lot. The pressure, the burden, the pain that, that a pastor has to deal with is unrelenting. There isn't a seminary class that can prepare you for uh, what is about to come, both the good and the bad. I know many pastors are afraid to talk about this stuff, and that's why I was so proud of them last week, because they're afraid uh, of uh, what people might say about them saying, I'm exhausted, and I'm tired, and it's tough. My job is tough, but it is. It is tough, and it is tiring. How tough is it? I read a statistic recently that up to 90% of people entering pastoral ministry do not retire from pastoral ministry. In other words, they quit along the way. Now, certainly, all vocational staff deals with with the pressures of of ministry. Our, Our staff does, every one of them. But trust me when I say that only a pastor can understand the pressure and the pain of a pastor. And I'll just be candid with you this morning. When I retired uh, those four or five years ago, I had a free intention of staying on longer, staying for a few more years. Over almost 40 years of pastoral ministry, nothing, nothing blessed my heart more than being your pastor for 15 years. But it also wore me out. So let me share with you five areas of perspective that I hope that I can give you by sharing five areas that I believe cause the most pain and pressure in a pastor's life. Let me just give them to you quickly. Number one, the constant pressure and tension between caring for the church family and caring for your personal family. 
The demands of the pastorate are often at the sacrifice of your personal family. And you, you, you constantly feel guilty that you're not giving not only the quality time, but the quantity time to your family that they, that they so much deserve and you so much want to give to them. Oftentimes, the church family takes priority over your personal family, and that results in pressure and pain. Number two, the pain from loneliness. From loneliness. The proverbial buck stops with you as the senior leader of the church. Philip has said to me many times, I had no idea the difference that 10 or 12 feet could make. He was referring to the distance between the hallway between his old office as associate pastor and walking across the hallway to occupy his new office that used to be my old office. And he said to me, after about two weeks of sitting behind your desk, I wanted to vomit. The enormity of the weight of responsibility was overwhelming. The third area that causes pain is the pain of unrealistic expectations. Pastors can never do everything right. I mean, we realize that. We're just human, obviously. We can never do everything right, and we can never please everyone. Every move the pastor makes is watched and scrutinized by someone. And believe me, I am not being paranoid when I say this. People place expectations on a pastor that they would never be willing to live up to themselves. Number four, the pain we feel by taking on the pain of others. We have the great privilege and great responsibility of walking alongside individuals and families as they go through the crises of life. And we feel their pain deeply. It's just the way it is. And then number five, the pain that comes from criticism. Now, all pastors are criticized at at some time or another. We we all receive criticism, all of us. Sometimes it's warranted, but many times uh, it's not. But the thing that most people don't realize is that it always hurts, especially when someone begins by saying, now, pastor, don't take this personal, but. You know, when, when someone would say that to me when I was pastor, I I would think in my mind, I wouldn't say it out loud. I wanted to, but I wouldn't wouldn't say it out loud. I I would just think, well, how else am I supposed to take it? You know, if it's it's directed to me. And if you get angry in response, well, then you're worldly. If you ignore them and you don't respond, then they become offended. If you defend yourself, then you are just insecure. If you tell them to take a hike, and there are times you want to say that, then they're out to get you. And someone could say, can say all, all that they want that those things shouldn't matter. But trust me, my friends, the pain is real. And it's not primarily the, the personal criticism. Most pastors know how to deal with the personal criticism. When I was criticized as a pastor 
I, I would go through a process that I felt God gave me. First of all, I would consider the source. Secondly, I would consider if there was any truth in what was being said. Because what's our natural tendency to do when we're criticized? Just say, ah, they don't know what they're talking about. But you at least need to give a little thought. Is there any truth to what they're saying? And then consider how uh, that truth might be used by God to make uh, changes in your life. You know, I tried to follow Rick Warren's advice about criticism. He said, criticism is like bubble gum. You need to chew on it a little bit, but never swallow it. But let me tell you, the criticism that nags at a pastor's heart just nags like a dripping faucet is the criticism directed at our staff in the ministries that they lead. Now, understand me, we expect criticism. We do. We expect that there will be some people who disagree with the direction of the ministry we lead. Some people don't like change. Most of us don't like change. But we have always been an innovative church. From day one, we have been an innovative church at Cedar Creek Church. We've been known all over South Carolina as an innovative church. And innovation results in a church environment that is constantly changing. And so when we make changes in a, in a ministry area, they are calculated changes. They are thought through and they are prayed through, and we believe that those changes will make that ministry more effective in reaching people with the gospel of God. That's why oftentimes those changes are made. We realize uh, that these changes will bring some criticism, and sometimes when a critic doesn't get their way, well, then they begin to attack the person, and that's when it becomes unhealthy. We need a healthy process. All churches need a healthy process whereby we receive and consider criticism, and our deacons and our senior staff is working on what that process will look like. So if one, someone feels the, the need uh, uh, for Offering constructive criticism, there is a healthy way of doing it. And let me just give you one example this morning, okay? Let me, let me, let me just choose, uh, uh, randomly choose the, the ministry area of, uh, oh, let's say praise and worship. Okay, I confess, I didn't randomly choose it. The evolution of the style of praise and worship that we sing here at Cedar Creek Church is constantly changing. You know, we literally, some of you who were with us during the daycare years, we literally started with, with songs like, This is the day, this is the day that the Lord hath made. I will rejoice. I Well, you get the idea, okay? When, when we started, there were a pitiful few praise and worship songs to choose from. We wanted songs that, that, that would facilitate us singing to God as an offering of our praise rather than what many of, of the hymns are, do, and that is they just simply sing about God. And through the years, our song list changed and, and grew, and today there are literally thousands of praise and worship songs to choose from. But here's the bottom line. Here's the bottom line. If you don't hear anything else that I say this morning, please get this. The bottom line is it's not about the songs. It's not about the songs. It's about 
an audience of one. It's about praising and worshiping God. You know, I went to the Cirrus uh, uh, satellite radio webpage this week, and I found that there are over 100 different genres of music. Over 100. And within each genre, there are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of different songs. And why do they offer such variety? I mean, they know how to market. Why do they offer such variety? Because they know that music is highly subjective. You like what you like, and the next person likes what they like. If we tried to appease everyone's musical taste, we'd be all over the place. Yes, the music we sing today is somewhat different than the music we sang a year ago. And a year from now, the music we sing now will be somewhat different then. Because music is highly subjective. In fact, the music we sing on all three of our campuses is different at each campus. We'll always be introducing new songs and new styles, and, and some of it you will like and some of it you won't. I mean, that's, a, that's a, just a fact of life. You know, if you were to loan me your vehicle and I went through your preset radio stations, there would be some of it that I would like and there would be some of it that I dislike. Music is subjective, but when you come to church, it's not ultimately about the music. It's about an audience of one and worshiping Him. And if you don't like a particular song or a particular stage set, there will be hundreds of other people here on a Sunday morning who do. And if you don't like any of the music, then here is what I would suggest. I would implore you not to stay out in the gym oratorium until the worship is over, because you are missing so much of what not only God desires for, from you, but what, you know, He wants your heart. And, and corporate worship has so much to do with the unity of the church, of us in unison, lifting our praise and worship to God. Some of us older folks, and my wife said not to say fuddy-duddy, so I'm not going to say that, okay? But some of us older folks, more than likely, are not going to like some of the new praise and worship because it's not our style. But it is the style of, of the younger generation. You know, every once in a while, I'll hear a parent or I'll hear a grandparent say, oh, I just wish that my son or daughter or my, my, my grandson or my granddaughter was in church. I pray constantly that, that uh, they would come to church and they would come to the Lord. I do almost anything to get them in church. Would you? Would you? Are you willing to give up your personal musical preferences for the good of the younger generation, for the good of your grandson, for the, for the good of your son or daughter or granddaughter? Because let me tell you, if they do come to Cedar Creek Church and they hear the music you like, chances are they won't come back. It's like, it's, it's like the little boy who found out that the circus was coming to town. He got so excited. He had always wanted to go to a circus. And he, said, he knew that his best, uh, his best bet was to go ask his grandpa. And he said, Grandpa, <clears throat> the circus is coming to town. Would you take me? And his grandpa said, well, of course I would. 
Of course I would. Well, a couple days later, the grandpa was talking to his friend, telling him about taking, he would be taking his grandson to the circus. And he told his friend, he said, I'll just be honest with you, I don't like the circus. I don't like anything about it. I don't like the smells. I don't like the food. I don't like the stupid animal tricks. I have a clown phobia. I just don't like the circus. And his friend said, then why in the world would you go and subject yourself to that? And the man, the grandpa got a big smile on his face, and he said, because I, I, I know the joy that it's going to bring my grandson. I mean, that, that, that's a no-brainer. Do you realize how radical Cedar Creek Church was when we started 19 years ago? I mean, everything about our our vision and how we implemented it was a new paradigm of how to do church in this community. The style of my preaching, the style of our praise and worship, the, the, the style of how we do community and do life together through small groups, the style of being a staff-led church instead of a committee-led church. I mean, that was radical 19 years ago. All the traditional churches in the area, they weren't a staff-led church. They were a committee-led church. Many of you were in that type of church. The only problem with that is it's not biblical. It's not biblical. When I say staff-led church, I mean we trust our pastor and his staff to lead us. Here's how it works. The pastor pours into his staff. The pastor leads the staff. And the staff leads out in their area of ministry responsibility. And they equip all of you to serve. Where in the world did I come up with such a crazy idea like that? Right out of the Bible. Ephesians 4.12. You might remember that verse, that we, we as the leaders in the church are to equip the saints, that's you by the way, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And that was, that was radical. But I'll tell you what, when we equip you to, do, to, to serve, there's no greater title that, that you can have at Cedar Creek Church than servant. Jesus said it like this, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. The statue of Jesus washing Philip's, uh, excuse me, Peter's feet that is displayed out there on our campus is a constant reminder of what God has called us to do and called us to be. And all of these new styles were targets for criticism. You don't think I got criticized for the way I preach? You know, people would say, well, he just preaches a watered-down gospel because he isn't uh, preaching hellfire and damnation. All I preached was grace. That's all I wanted to preach. I had a passion to preach about God's grace, that God gives you what you need, not what you deserve. Aren't you glad? And you just preach about God's grace. You preach about Christ and him crucified. You don't think we got criticized all the way back then about our style of praise and worship? You better believe that we did. And that criticism continued through the years, and it continues to this day. Music has always been a lightning rod for criticism. And you know why J.J. and I never gave in to that criticism? Because we knew that our ever-changing style of music keeps us relevant. 
and provides us with yet another opportunity to reach more people and help them find their way back to God. And just for the record, because some of you still want to know what I think. You know, there's one or two of you out there. But just for the record, I support our pastor and our music leader, our worship leader, Mark Brown, 110%. I'll never, I'll never forget the first time that I met Mark. It was out there in the gym of Oratorium. Uh, almost a year ago. He hasn't been here, I don't think, quite a year yet. And I was out in the gym of Foratorium, and Philip brought him over to me to introduce me. And I'll tell you, I have never been more impressed with a first impression than when I met Mark Brown. And I would encourage you, if you haven't had the opportunity to do that, to take that opportunity. I knew within a minute or two of this man's heart, his deep love for Jesus, and his deep love for God's church, and his passion to use music to help people connect with God. And he works hard at equipping a large team who lead us Sunday after Sunday with excellence. And he's increased the number of people involved in in the music ministry here at Cedar Creek Church, five or six or sevenfold across all three of our campuses. I just want to say publicly this morning. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We are so blessed to have Mark and his beautiful wife, Carla, and their their precious two sons. We truly are. You know, every once in a while, someone will say to me, things sure aren't the same around here as they were when you were pastor. First of all, that puts me in a very uncomfortable position. And secondly, here is my response from this day forward. If someone says, you know, things sure aren't the same as they were here when you were pastor, here's my response. Is it going to be a simple response because I believe it with all of my heart? When they say that, I'm going to respond by saying, you are absolutely right. They are not the same. They are so much better They are so much better than when I was pastor. Because if they weren't, then we'd be failing miserably at what God has called us to do and to be as his church. The style we used in the past to attract unbelievers, and that's how God has used this church. He has planted a vision in in my heart and now in Philip's heart to make a difference in the lives of unbelievers and to use a style that would attract them. But the style we used in the past is not the style that's going to attract unbelievers today. You know, through the years, I've had the privilege of mentoring quite a few new church planters. And every time I meet with one of them, inevitably, one of the questions they will ask is, what is the one most important piece of advice that you can give me? They all ask that. You know, they want to know, what's that one most important piece of advice? And my answer is always the same. Stay true to the vision God has given you. Stay true. And that's my advice for us as God's church here at Cedar Creek Church. Stay true. Stay true to the vision that God has given us. If we hadn't stayed true to the vision God gave us, we'd still be five couples meeting in our living room. 
If we hadn't stayed true to the vision that God gave us, we'd still be 150 to 200 people meeting in a daycare center. If we hadn't stayed true to the vision God gave us, we'd still be 800 to 1,000 people meeting in what is now the Youth Worship Center. If we hadn't stayed true to the vision that God gave us, we would still be one church in one location. My friends, our style is constantly changing while our vision remains the same. And that is to be God's life-saving station for the lost and hurting in this community. Our church is, all, is, is 19 years old now, and the older we get, the more we have to guard against drifting from our vision. If we drift, the results will be tragic, as seen in this modern-day parable by Theodore Waddell. I want to read it to you. He writes, on a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a little crude life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea and with no thought for themselves went out day and night tirelessly searching for the lost. Many lives were saved by this wonderful little station so that it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding area wanted to become associated with the station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought, new crews were trained, the little life-saving station grew. Some of the members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members. And they decorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely because they used it as sort of a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions. So they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decoration, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them had black skin, and some of them had yellow skin. The beautiful new club was was in chaos, so the property committee immediately had a shower built outside the club where victims of shipwrecks could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. And so they uh, had a vote. And finally, those were voted down that wanted to continue to save the lives of all various kinds of people. And so because of that, other life-saving stations started to crop up along that coast. And they went through the same evolution from knowing their vision, knowing what they were called to do as a life-saving station, to becoming just a, just a club. And so, 
There are many different life-saving stations along that coast. But the problem is, when there are shipwrecks, most of the people just drown. You see, God's vision for Cedar Creek Church has not changed. We are to be a life-saving station, reaching out to the shipwrecked and the lost of our community. And for that to remain our focus, for that to remain our vision, we must guard against a club mentality by willingly putting our own personal preferences aside for the greater work of God's kingdom. Jesus said it like this, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. I used to say it like this, Cedar Creek Church exists for the next unsaved, unchurched person who walks through our doors. The Apostle Paul said it like this, I have become all things to all people so that I may by all means save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel, that I may become a partner in its benefits. Peter Drucker, who's been called the father of modern management, says it like this, an organization begins to die the day it begins to run for the insiders and not the outsiders. Tom Rayner, president and CEO of Lifeway Christian Resources, said it like this. He said in an article he wrote, from my perspective, I am a church member. I will seek to be a source of unity in the church. I know there are no perfect pastors, staff, or other church members, but neither am I. I will not be a source of gossip or dissension. One of the greatest contributions I can make is to do all I can in God's power to help keep the church in unity for the sake of the gospel. I am a church member. I will not let my church be about my preferences and desires. That is self-serving. I am in this church to serve others and to serve Christ. My Savior went to the cross for me. I can deal with any inconveniences and matters that are just not my preference or style. And then he concludes, I am a church member. This membership is a gift. When I received the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ, I became a part of the body of Christ. I soon thereafter identified with a local body and was baptized. And now I am humbled and honored to serve and to love others in our church. I pray that I will never take my membership for granted, but see it as a gift and opportunity to serve others and to be a part of something so much greater than any one person or member. I am a church member, and I thank God that I am. You see, no matter how you say it, we're all saying the same thing. Our focus and priority is to be about the vision that God has given our pastor, and that is to help people, all people, find their way back to God. And let me tell you, that can only be done in God's power. There's one more illustration that I want to share with you before I close. Pastor and writer and former chaplain of the U.S. Senate, Lloyd Ogilvie, puts this in perspective with this illustration. He writes, one day when I was sailing, the wind went down and the sea became calm and flat. There was nothing to do but sit in irons and wait for the wind. Irons is a sailing term for a windless time of drifting. While waiting for the wind, I drifted past another sailboat that was floating aimlessly. The people on board the craft waved and made flat-of-hand gestures of complaint about the wind. 
no, no wind. One man stood by the sails and blew on them. And he said, I thought about that for a long time afterward. How like many Christians in far too many churches, human breath blowing on the sails. No wonder we make so little progress. The Hebrew word for Spirit of God means breath. It means wind. At at Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit was like a mighty wind. The Spirit filled the disciples and got them going again. And what we need is a mighty wind, a fresh, bracing wind of a new Pentecost. And I would encourage you this morning, and I would encourage myself to stop blowing our own breath on the sails of our life and on the sails of our church. You need to ask God for a fresh wind to fill the sails. Without the Holy Spirit, we will simply drift in iron and be lost at sea. Would you pray with me, please? Would you just bow your heads for a moment and close your eyes and, and, and just get before God? And as we pray this morning, I would call us to repent of any time that we have put our personal preferences before the greater good of God's church. And, and all of us, all of us, none of us are exempt. All of us have done that at one time or another. And I want to implore you this morning to ask God for a fresh wind to fill your sails and a fresh wind to fill the sails of our church so that the next 20 years in the life of Cedar Creek Church will result in the same outpouring of God's power. And the result will be the changed lives of thousands of more people who have found their way back to God. And ask God this morning for a a fresh wind to fill the sails of our pastor and his family. And a fresh wind to fill our staff and those they lead that we may be all united in God and united in the vision that he has called us to do and to be about as a church.